This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. We're going to talk about wokeness a little bit here on the broadcast. It never really seems to go away, but boy, is it getting weird out there. It is getting so weird out there. You just can't leave your kids alone for a minute. It isn't just a matter of keeping them out of the public schools or if they're in the public schools, watching the public schools like a hawk to make sure that you're not getting all this wokeness jammed down their throats during classroom time. You have to watch everything with your kids. You probably know this if you're a mom or dad. You have to watch everything these days. I remember several years ago when especially my youngest was very small, we had to just put the controls on our TV over Disney Channel when they started introducing homosexual characters. And pretty soon it just seemed to be an avalanche, like a snowball gathering snow down a hill of children's TV programming. And this is woke and this is LGBT. And you just go, Whatever happened, you know, Captain Kangaroo, I'm really dating myself, but just nice children's TV programs and there's nothing controversial and it's just cute and there's simple lessons, Sesame Street, which is totally woke now. No, those days are gone. Here's an example of it. This is just amazing. I couldn't make this up. I really could not make this up. Nickelodeon is so liberal. You've got so many LGBT activists involved over there. We've talked about that at various points during the show. But Nickelodeon is now under fire because they aired a segment on Earth Day claiming that environmental racism is playing a role in so-called climate change. Environmental racism? What, the environment is racist? That waterfall really can't stand certain people. What? What is this about? Well, I'm going to play a little bit of it for you. Let's listen first to cut one. There's Cancer Alley, which is an area along the Mississippi River in Louisiana that's lined with oil refineries and air so toxic in New York South Bronx that 20% of children have asthma. What do these cities have in common? They're all examples of environmental racism, a form of systemic racism, where minority and low-income communities are surrounded by health hazards because they live near sewage, mines, landfills, power stations, major roads. Okay, so anywhere there's an oil refinery or there's any kind of, I don't know, plants or these kinds of things, not plants in the ground, but but plants that you know do any kind of energy production, that's racist now? Because they're near to areas where uh, people live who are minorities? You're really reaching Nickelodeon. Oh, but it gets worse. This is a longer cut. But listen to how they got into this story about Duplin County, North Carolina. This is cut two. It has never been more devastating and harmful than in Duplin, North Carolina, where, believe it or not, the number of hogs 
outnumber the number of residents. Fiana moved away from Duplin County as soon as she could, which is why she's okay opening up about life there. When we tried reaching out to a number of people currently living in Duplin County, they were too scared to go on camera. It's a small town and there's a farm on almost every corner. Duplin County in eastern North Carolina produces more hogs than any other county in the United States. Chances are that piece of bacon or pork chop you eat might have come from here. And listen to this. There are two million hogs in that county with just under 60,000 residents. And many of the people work in the hog farms, which it turns out are dangerous to their health and to the environment. Growing up in Duplin County, we would go outside and play with our friends and our cousins, whoever lived in our community. But sometimes um, the air quality would be so bad to the point where we would have to strictly play in the house. And that was due to the hog farms um, spraying feces in the fields. Yes, you heard that right. For decades, residents have complained that just breathing in the feces-infested air alone can make you sick. In 2014, more than 500 North Carolinians, most of them black, filed over two dozen federal lawsuits against the meat-producing companies. But these hog farms have continued with business as usual. Okay, <laughs> let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. You're reporting on the fact that they have a lot of hogs in Duplin, North Carolina. Two million hogs and there are only 60,000 residents. So what is that? You can't have two million hogs unless you have two million people. What, what exactly is the point there? They have more hogs than any other county. So why is that a problem? Okay, well, we reached out to one ex-resident, but everybody else we talked to is too scared to talk. What, did they think that the hog farmers are going to tie them up and you know, stop, stop on. I mean, what are they, what are people worried? I don't really understand this story. I don't understand this. Why don't you go to the mayor of the town or, or go to people who actually are aware of what's going on? Maybe they did later on the broadcast and I just missed it, but this seems like a very flimsy report. We talked to one ex-resident. I, I don't see the environmental racism. How is this environmental racism? Are you to believe then that if they were using these feces-based sprays, but there were non-minorities living in this town, that they would not do it? I'm not, I don't know. But who in the world is going to be asking these questions among the tots who are watching Nickelodeon? You think any of these kids are asking these questions? Hey, wait a minute. You have a one source story with somebody who moved out of town. I don't really think that's good sourcing for your journalism. I mean, there's no kid in the world who's going to do that and barely any adult who's going to do that. But I fail to see how this is racist. It's racist that they have some environmental policies that may harm the air. Well, nobody wants air to be harmed. I don't think that that's a good thing in any case, but I need more. I need more information. Well, Fiona, the ex-resident they interviewed, said this. Cut three. Going to school, you would be very self-conscious because of the smell. Whenever you walk down the road and the wind is up high, you can feel it. It's like a shower on your skin and it's full of feces. It is environmental racism. Companies put their hog farms in areas that are mainly poor areas with um, black people and Hispanic people. So I would say people of color. Is that true? 
Hog farmers mainly put their farms in areas where poor people are minorities. There are no whites. I don't think that's true. I don't think that that's true. There may be some areas where you have farms in minority, majority communities, minority, majority, if you get what I'm saying. How does that prove racism? There's no link whatsoever is the point. There's no link whatsoever. How in the world can you even claim there's racism involved here? You, well, you can say whatever you want. You have a very captive audience, a bunch of kids who mom wants to just plunk down in front of the TV and do something because I got to go talk on my smartphone or what have you. This is what kids are being subjected to, this kind of nonsense. Now, one of the things I really enjoyed was the fact that New York City parents are now speaking out against woke school curriculum of this nature, not environmental racism, but the woke stuff. And one of them was a woman by the name of Yatin Chu. She's actually an immigrant from Taiwan and spoke over on Fox News about this, standing up to the wokeness. Listen to this. Cut four. As an immigrant, I faced a lot of challenges in the early years, but I got the benefit of a great education in New York City. And, uh, you know, right after I turned 50, I I wake up to a New York City where my school, my alma mater, is getting attacked uh, for having, quote, an overrepresentation of Asian students. Is it because they qualified for the school? Absolutely. Um, The specialized high school and specifically my alma mater, the Bronx High School Science, uses a uh, one test, a race blind, income blind test called the SHSAT. And it it is through this test that uh, students gain admissions to the schools. All right. So now you have Asian parents fighting back against the wokeism because they're being marginalized for their race because out in New York City, apparently it's wrong for too many Asians to qualify to get into an elite school. That's not fair. And that's racist. What are we going to call this? Educational racism, academic racism. It never ends. And you know what we need more than anything else? We need for it to end. Erica Sands is going to join me next from Parents Defending Education. They're a group that is trying to bring about the end of this wokeism in public schools. We're going to join her when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 
402 baby. That's 855 402 2229. Or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now. Now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. As we are all painfully aware, progressives are increasingly using wokeness to indoctrinate children in the public schools. President Biden's Department of Education, for example, recently released the text of a proposed new rule praising the 1619 Project and giving priority to grant projects that incorporate racially, ethnically, culturally and linguistically diverse perspectives. This moves us even closer to the horrible Civic Secures Democracy Act, which, as National Review Stanley Kurtz pointed out, would effectively force critical race theory and action civics onto states and localities. But the good news is that the parental backlash has started against the activism and discrimination that's being pushed on our kids in the name of equity and diversity and also this insane gender ideology. And remarkably, there's a rare bipartisanship to it all. That's a pretty unusual twist. We're going to get some more details on it now from Erica Sanzi, who's Director of Outreach at Parents Defending Education, a national grassroots organization working to reclaim our schools from activists promoting harmful agendas. And Erica, great to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. According to your website, you're getting a lot of letters, as I understand it, from concerned parents and even from teachers about what's going on in the classrooms. What do parents need to know about what's going on in the public schools? I mean, I sometimes assume every parent knows what's going on, but I know that's not the case. What what do they need to know? Well, I think that what parents need to know is that, you know, most people have long known that there's been a liberal lean in K-12 education. Right. And I think that what they need to know is that what we're seeing now is not that. This is not that your teacher, you know, just happened to love George McGovern and has, you know, the stickers around the classroom or, you know, makes their their comments that are pretty anodyne about politics. This is the what appears to be um, a very fast moving ideology that has crept in. Well, actually, crept isn't the right word because it's kind of come like a freight train but it has come in in ways where I think that a lot of people who have who have approved it don't have any idea what they've signed up for. Wow. That's crazy. How can you not know what you're signing up for? I mean, it's all around us and there's so many controversies about it, but they, they must have been very stealth in how they presented this initially in order to get it going. Well, I think part of it is that it's very rhetorically manipulative. So words that you and I and any decent person would want to be be able to get behind diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism. These are words that have come to mean something different than what we've known them to mean. Right. And so that is where it gets tricky because who's going to be against anti-racism? The problem is that anti-racism doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. And so that means that it doesn't, it's not enough to be against 
racism. It's not enough to be not racist. It's not enough to be opposed to discrimination based on the color of one's skin. Anti-racism essentially says that you have a moral obligation to discriminate based on immutable traits to make up for past discrimination. Right. Right. And it also, and it also means that you need to be actively working to dismantle the systems. Um, founded upon white supremacy. But then in the next breath, it says that every single system in America falls into that category. Yeah, yeah. Absent any real proof of any of that. And that's just racism. I mean, and then when white people say, hey, wait a minute, you guys are being racist toward us, we're told it's white privilege to even say something like that. So you're in a no-win situation. Linguistically, it, it is a no-win situation. It's a little bit like the Black Lives Matter movement. When you hear the three words Black Lives Matter... Again, no decent moral person is going to disagree with those words. Sure. The, prob- the problem is that those words also represent an ideological movement. And people who have, you know, looked into what that movement is and studied the cause have reason to be concerned. And so, but you get trapped because if you, if you speak out against the movement, it sounds like you're also speaking out against just those three words as a phrase. Sure. And so it's, it's, there's intimidation and bullying baked into all of this, largely because the language is really so genius in that it makes it hard for detractors to speak out without immediately being labeled you know, names and words that nobody wants to be called. So the intimidation factor is big. Well, it is. Now, I mean, there have been a number of stories in recent days in the news about some of these parents pushing back. What are you hearing from parents about what their kids are going through and also about the bipartisanship of parents and educators who are coming together now and saying enough is enough with this stuff? So what we find is that we're hearing from parents from all over the country of all political stripes, um, and now I will say that conservative and libertarian parents seem to be more willing to speak out publicly. They're not, you know, they're not in that situation of being afraid to speak out against their in-group. Right. Um, but, but many, many self-described liberals, Democrats are also contacting us saying, you know, I've been a progressive my whole life, but this is crazy. Hmm. Um, And what we're hearing are lots of different things. For sure, one of the groups that we hear from a lot who seem the most distraught are the parents um, that that are uh, biracial couples, which is to say if one of the parents is white and the other parent is not white, so their children are biracial, And so this fixation on race in the schools and this fixation on identity and putting yourself into these boxes and in some school districts, even being segregated during the school day by your race, this is this is really creating um, some major upset for multiracial families for obvious reasons. We had one we had one father tell us that not only was their child told that he couldn't go to the white identifying group. He had to go to the BIPOC group. But then in addition to being told which group he could go to, because again, he was a biracial kid, 
he was also then told, you need to understand you can't ever really be yourself around white people. Oh, gee. And so that's increasingly concerning. And it's also, I should say, it's not only a race thing. These, these identity groups that, that schools are forcing children to identify, and now in really early grades, like I just read through the new revisions to the state standards in Oregon about ethnic studies, and they have in their kindergarten standards that students will learn to identify their identity group. <laughs> and they listed race, gender, religion, and a couple other things. So it's, it's, it's telling everyone's daughters that just because they were born female, they are part of an oppressed class. Good grief. That's and terrible. it's telling everybody's sons that they are oppressors simply because they were born male. And that <sighs> happens and they do that with race and they do it with religion and they do it with sexual orientation yeah. and they do it with nation of birth. And obviously it varies. You know, some schools are incredibly, incredibly egregious where you can't even believe what you're hearing and seeing. Others, it may not be so extreme, but it's still it's still bad. And I think what has happened is school board members and superintendents and people working in schools don't really know what they signed up for because you don't always know that an act that activists have kind of infiltrated your, maybe it's your school committee, maybe it's your administration. It's maybe it's the pressure coming from the community, but suddenly, you know, you're signing up and paying big money to have diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants come in and wreak havoc on your school community. Oh, man. That's just, it's enraging. It's enraging. And I, th- I talk to a lot of parents who say, what's so frustrating about it for me is that you, you feel like you can't trust anybody. You feel like you can't just send your child to school and have, you know, operate in good faith that your parents and, you know, that your teachers, I, I should say, and your administrators are going to do the decent thing and educate your child and not indoctrinate your child. And, and like you mentioned before, the gender madness is part of it. Students are being asked what their pronouns are and little kids are being... Mm-hmm. You know, told about cisgender, all this LGBT nonsense. What is the way to fight back against this, Erica? Your part, as I mentioned, of this parents defending education. What can parents do to fight back? What should they be doing? Well, one thing they can do, and we have resources on our website at defendinged.org, is to begin to understand some of the jargon and to begin to understand what is meant by certain terms. So under our resources tab on our website, we have that. And another important thing for parents to do is to is to get into a position where they're not always fighting against something, but that they can be for something, okay. which is to say what happens is when you're against this, this ideology or these curricular materials, people like to say, oh, well, then you don't even, you know, you don't think racism is a problem. You don't think that any of these things matter. And that's not what the parents are saying. What the parents are saying is that the way that these issues are being introduced and discussed the way that their children are forced to um, take on one point of view, compelled to say things that they don't believe. No, that's where the complaints come from. There are programs and there are materials and there are people doing work on these topics that is constructive and healthy and positive and actually can lead to positive change. Right. 
instead of the, the programs that I'm talking about, which are destructive, they are toxic, and the truth is they actually make things worse. Yeah, exactly. And that I mean, that's such a good point that you shouldn't just be screaming at the darkness, but also lighting a candle. I think that that's really good advice. And people can check out DefendingEd.org for more information, Parents Defending Education. Erica Sansi with us. Erica, thank you so much. And I tip my hat to you for what you're doing. That's awesome. Thank you very, very much. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Take care. You're listening to Janet Muffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Is President Biden taking us back to President Obama's Middle East policy? There is increasing evidence that he's moving in that direction. Now, President Trump, you'll recall, was able to broker the Abraham Accords among Israel, Bahrain, UAE, Sudan, and Morocco in light of understanding the increasing threat of Iran. Under Biden, however, Middle East policy is turning back in a more pro-Iran, pro-Palestinian direction, leading former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to criticize the administration for attempting to undo peace in the Middle East, by President Trump. The implications are huge for the U.S. and Israel and the whole region. And we're going to get some analysis now from Greg Roman, who is director of the Middle East Forum. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Now, we have President Biden contemplating the renegotiation of the Iran deal. We've had Secretary of State Blinken announcing the reinstatement of aid to the West Bank and Gaza and the U.N. Relief and Works Agency. What is your take on the moves that the administration is making right now concerning Middle East policy? I think that it's trying to distance itself from Obama insofar as it wants to be able to carve out its own branded Middle East policy. But at the same time, it's cropping a lot closer towards what I would call a um, sort of neophyte policy, one in which they're trying new items out. They're trying new policies. But it's really just inheriting what had failed under the Obama administration, what the Trump administration tried to fix. And now it's almost as if though this neophyte strategy is a knee-jerk reaction to trying to what the Biden officials consider to be fixing what Trump did or to undo what he did, even if those policies were actually smart and they had good results. Yes. So from Morocco to Pakistan, uh, from Turkey down to maybe Turkey's the one good thing that they did in the last uh, week. But um, from Turkey down to Somalia, it's, it's really proving to be another disaster. Well, right. So now when you're talking about the Biden administration wanting to distance itself from Obama, certainly the renegotiation of the Iran deal would be going right back to Obama. Where would you say they are positively trying to distance themselves from Obama? Turkey is one that you just mentioned. Right. When President uh, Obama was asked, who are the top three world leaders that you consider to be friends of the United States? Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the then prime minister of Turkey, 
and later president, as he is now in his current position, was listed as one of those top three. When Obama was asked to name the top ten, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, didn't even make that list. So to say that an Islamist acolyte of Muslim Brotherhood influence is in the top three friends of the United States, that's an Obama quote. Now Biden is saying, well, we've kind of seen the way that Erdogan has operated against the United States in the first four years, excuse me, in the second four years of the Obama administration, the sponsorship and the humanitarian, um, I was exploitation of, uh, of terror organizations in Syria in the last five years, and also the uh, rampant human rights abuses that Erdogan conducted uh, from 2017 when they had the alleged failed coup attempt until this year has finally pushed even Biden over the edge <laughs> and now doing something which is almost anathema to U.S. American foreign policy interests. 102 years, 103 years now, after the Armenian genocide, the United States has finally recognized it, at least coming from the White House. Yes, right. That was a good thing as well. What, what's interesting, though, the, these moves that have just been made concerning giving aid now to the U.N. Relief and Works Agency in the West Bank and Gaza, isn't this a violation of U.S. law? Because we have laws on the books that have conditions put in place if you're going to be doing something along these lines. How can they even do this? So for all of these different pieces of legislation which have been passed. Going back to the time of Jimmy Carter, there's been something that deals with the Palestinians. There's something called a national security exception or a national security carve-out. If the President of the United States defines or if he authorizes or he has what's called a presidential finding that he says that is in the United in, in the interests of the United States to fund um, body A, B, or C, most of these pieces of legislation have that kicker that allows them to get over it. Now, in the case where you don't have one, for instance, uh, the PLO is currently considered to be a, uh, for lack of a better word, a terror organization by the U.S. government, meaning that the Palestinians uh, should not be able to have an interest office in Washington, D.C. The way they get around it is they say, well, we're appointing this individual Palestinian of Palestinian descent to represent Palestinian diaspora interests. It's effectively an embassy for Mahmoud Abbas in Washington, D.C. This was shut down by President Trump, and now President Biden is bringing it back. You also said about UNRWA, UNRWA, which is the Palestine Refugee Agency. Now, I say Palestine because when I'm not speaking about a so-called country of Palestine. I'm speaking about the area that was under British occupation from 1946 until 1948, and was supposed to deal with the individuals who were living there at that time who could not become part of a sovereign territory. Now, the Arabs that decided to stay in Israel, or what would become Israel in 48, they're not considered refugees. And those who left and were left stateless were only supposed to be represented by that agency until they died. Hmm. Unfortunately, this is the only crisis or the only refugee situation, and put that in air quotes, where a refugee is inheriting its status. Now we're in the fifth generation of those Arabs from 48 who were either rejected by Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, or other Arab countries that wouldn't absorb them and make them citizens, or those that live in the West Bank and Gaza. And to much uh, you know, chagrin of the Israeli government, the United States is now funding it again. 
It's only perpetuated crisis, which should have been solved over 80 years ago. That's crazy. And what's so weird here, when you're talking about the ways in which the Biden administration wants to distance itself from the bad decisions of the Obama administration, kind of carve out its own position. What I find interesting is, for example, you have Linda Thomas-Greenfield saying during her, this is the UN ambassador, ambassador to the UN, saying during her confirmation hearings, we want to be pro-Israel, we you know, decry the BDS movement, we need to recognize Israel at the UN, these kinds of comments. But yet they're doing this with Palestine. And so how does that in, you know, ingratiate ourselves to, to Israel and send the message to Israel that we're standing with them? It seems like extremely mixed messages. Look, you can't flip two sides of a coin and expect the same result each and every time. Yeah. And that's what the Biden administration and, and most, most U.S. presidential administrations, both Republican and Democrat, with the exception of probably the first four years of Bush II and the Trump administration, which have led to the United States trying to treat Palestinians and Israelis as equals, and they are not. Right. Israel is a strategic ally of the United States. It provides intelligence. Uh, technology, unfathomable military support, and other cultural and religious and people-to-people connections that have nowhere near close what the Palestinians wish for on their best day. Mm-hmm. And the Palestinians, unfortunately, continue to live with a waywards, backwards ideology that ends up just leaving to their own isolation and decimation. And until they wake up and say, you know what, the only way we're going to have a state is when we understand that it's got to be next to a Jewish state. And whatever that looks like, that's for the Israelis and Palestinians to decide. But until the U.S., just like President Trump did, says to the Palestinian leadership, hey, get with the program and recognize your neighbors as the Jewish state of Israel, it's not going to happen. And if Biden tries to do what Obama did or any other U.S. president by trying to treat them as equals, they'll be able to get a little bit more credibility for them and then that will end up leading towards more rejectionism by the Palestinian side. Well, this is the problem, and, and a lot of people are concerned in the wake of the Abraham Accords what happens where you have the you know dangerous um, saber-rattling by Iran and you have the Biden administration wanting to renegotiate this deal. What does this mean for Israel? And, and I think a lot of people are concerned about whether or not you will continue to have a road moving more toward peace in the Middle East. It's just so complicated. One of the things I want to get into, Greg, when we come back from this break, is this issue of the Iran deal, because many people have pointed out that this is not the same situation as we had back in 2015. Not that the Iran deal was necessarily ever a good idea. It wasn't. But what happens from here? We're going to come back with Greg Roman, who is director of the Middle East Forum, discussing Biden's foreign policy in the Middle East. Stay with us. We'll be right back. After taking the morning after pill, this mom immediately felt sick and nauseated as she tried to end her pregnancy. While searching for medical care, she found a preborn center where she hoped to rule out that she was pregnant. I had an ultrasound done right then and there. After hearing the baby's heartbeat, I instantly thanked God and said, may your will be done, Lord. I'm seven months pregnant now. I thank God every day for my little miracle. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms in crisis to the life growing inside of them and sharing the 
gospel in action. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Will you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, the membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. Thanks so much for being with us. What is the Biden administration up to as far as Middle East policy? Well, it's not the Trump years anymore, but it's not quite the Obama years either. Greg Roman is with us, director of the Middle East Forum. And we were talking a little bit, Greg, before we went to break about the Iran deal. Many people have pointed out that these days Iran is... Uh, in a different position in some ways than it was in 2015 as these Democrats want to go back to the uh, renegotiating the Iran deal. Uh, What is your take on what's going on, especially in light of the fact that we've now got the uh, Iranian foreign minister, this news has just come out saying that John Kerry had been involved in in, uh, telling about more than 200 Israeli covert operations in Syria while he was in the Obama administration. I mean, this is just astonishing. Right, and you, you have to look at this, where the U.S., if Zarif is to be believed, was taking extremely sensitive and confidential information that Israeli resources had provided to it, or that the Israeli government knew was detected by U.S. spy satellites or assets on the ground, and it was conveying this information to Israel's mortal enemy. And I would even go so far as to say that Iran is the greatest sponsor and the greatest threat of U.S. security interests in the Middle East. So to to reveal over 200 strikes to the spokesperson of this dictatorial, tyrannical regime, it it seems unbelievable. Anything that a Democrat accused President Trump of doing on his worst day would not fathom to even compare it to this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's crazy. And and what do you think will be the, the pushback against Kerry, if any? I don't think that Kerry will face much since Biden will say, A, it was authorized by President Obama, or B, it was in line with the administration's approach towards negotiations, or C, he's not holding the Iran portfolio right now, 
He's dealing with climate change, so it's a non-issue. <sighs> I don't think Harry's going anywhere. Wow, that that's a shame. But you're right. I think you're you're going to be right on that. But yet, you know, a lot has gone on with Iran, as we've talked about before, killing Soleimani, the you know from the Iran Revolutionary Guard. You've get, you had the sanctions. You had everything that went on during the Trump years. Now you've got this Kerry news that's just come out. Where do you see the renegotiation of the Iran deal going from here? I mean, is it put on the back burner at all by this recent news or no? Well, just like Biden has tried to articulate through his secretary of state, Tony Blinken, that the United States will be trying to negotiate a more comprehensive uh, nuclear deal, which will deal with the nuclear program, but also Iran's covert activity and foreign influence operations in the Middle East, long-range technology and sponsorship of terror organizations. I think that the Iranians are trying to change their tune, at least for public optics as well. I mean, look at an interview that the same, very same foreign minister we were just speaking about, Foreign Minister Zarif, uh, gave to the New York Times last year, where he essentially criticized Qasem Soleimani, the former head of the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Overseas Division by saying that Soleimani was trying to basically torpedo the Iran deal that Zarif was uh, negotiating by trying to get the Russians to intervene and interfere and to sabotage any likelihood of a second uh, nuclear deal. So the Iranians are dispelling their concerns and trying to blame any former activity on Soleimani. Biden is saying he's trying to be more comprehensive. It seems to me like the U.S. and Iran are coordinating their talking points. Oh. That's never a good, that's never a good um, approach when uh, the, the, the allowance for Iran to get back in this deal will essentially cement their ability to have a nuclear program, which could go nuclear. What I mean by that is, is to become weaponized within 60 days of the uh, current enrichment capacity they have right now. Oh, my goodness. Well, and then you had this story just recently where this surface-to-air missile was fired from Syria into Israel. And what do you make of that? Are we seeing a destabilization of the Middle East already taking place? And do you tie that at all to some of the actions of the administration? Um, No, I tie the launch of that missile, which landed within 40 kilometers of Israel's own nuclear site, the Dimona reactor, uh, I place that blame squarely on Prime Minister Netanyahu's shoulders. Wow. And that, that might not be a popular opinion to have, but um, perhaps it's just the length of time that he has been in office that means that our enemies are no longer surprised. You know, they, they know the limits of what Netanyahu is willing to do as Prime Minister. They have long allowed um, themselves to fire rocket barrages on Israel's southern citizens. And they also know that he's a risk-averse leader. He's more interested in staying as prime minister rather than taking that calculated, drastic, and surprising military activity that Israel has been known for over the decades. He's relying more now on covert operations through the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, rather than what may be needed right now, which is an overt military operation to signal to Iran and to Syria that if you file... If you fire a missile one kilometer into Israeli territory, 
let alone a few dozen kilometers from its nuclear sites, you'll be facing a devastating response. Goodness. Well, now, what is the future, in your view, of the Abraham Accords and the the pro, you know the progress that the Trump administration made on trying to you know at least achieve some peace among some of these Arab nations with Israel? What what do you think is likely to happen there? You know, what was really fascinating about what President Trump and his team were able to do. And I sat down with a former official last Friday who was there negotiating the memorandums of understanding with each country that took part in those peace uh, deals, is, is that it is devoid of Palestinian uh, interests. Huh. So if Israel is signing an agreement with Morocco, it makes no mention of the Palestinians. It's squarely about the bilateral relationship between Morocco and Israel. Hmm. The same thing with the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan. What Trump did was he didn't tie peace with other Arab countries in Israel to the Palestinians. He said, we're going to make the Palestinian issue a non-starter, and then we'll get to the real interests that lie between Israel and other Arab states. And by doing that, that may guarantee the survival, the prosperity, and the eventual um, sort of sketching in stone the firm nature of the Abraham Accords, rather than having it fall apart, like happened with Oslo after President Clinton tied the Palestinians, the Arabs together, and conditioning both on peace with Israel. That's an interesting point. That's interesting. And what about the the intent by the Biden administration to withdraw troops from Afghanistan? What do you make of that decision and its potential implications? I... Um, I'm never one for trumpeting your retreat. Yeah. If you are going to wind down troops from Afghanistan, it might make for good points at home, but you better have a contingency plan for dealing with the reemergence of, uh, first, the Taliban, uh, second, ISIS in yeah. Afghanistan. It's yeah. pretty active. And third, there's always al-Qaeda to worry about in the next generation of the guys who brought down the towers. Right. That's right. Yeah, I do worry about that. And that's that's on a lot of people's minds as well, the resurgence of ISIS, which already seems to be occurring. Uh, do you see it that way, that ISIS is going to roar back to life? I, I have to tell you, I, I don't think ISIS ever went away to be able to define it as a resurgence. Yeah. It's more as if though ISIS uh, shifted. They had their nucleus of power in Syria under Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi until he was taken out by the U.S., yeah. And then gradually its influence, it didn't wane, but it would transfer to Africa. We've had the ongoing um, uh, called uprising in Mozambique, yes. which is on the eastern coast of Africa. We have them active in Nigeria with Boko Haram, the, uh, the group responsible for the kidnapping of hundreds, not thousands of young women yes. in that country, and the uh, insurgency in Mali. So they, they relocated to... Um, Africa and, and to a certain extent Southeast Asia. They haven't gone away. No, they haven't gone away and they come under different names like you mentioned Boko Haram in Nigeria and we've seen so much violence and mayhem there in Nigeria and persecution against Christians obviously which was a big part of the Obama years in the Middle East and it, it just it's it's very nerve-wracking because you're right about these terrorists they may lay low for a while but they have a tendency to stick around and strike when you least expect it and we certainly don't want that. Well you can read more over at the Middle East Forum website it's meforum.org Greg Roman director of the Middle East Forum spending time with us and we're so glad you did. Greg, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.
You're welcome. Thanks for being with us today. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on Janet Meffer today. It's always a delight to have you with us as well, and we'll see you next time.